Welcome to Fine Tuning with Drew Taylor, your one-stop shop when it comes to animation news and commentary. I'm Drew's co-host, entertainment writer Jim Hill, and he and I are recording this show on Wednesday, December 18th, 2019, which is a week out from Christmas, which is why I hope that everybody's pre-ordered a copy of The Art of Onward for the animation fans on the holiday shopping list. This 176-page hardcover goes on sale March 3rd of next year, three days before that Dan Scanlon movie arrives in theaters. Um, but we had a new trailer drop, what, Tuesday of this week? Right? Yeah, what do you think? Um, I, I have to admit, I'm, I'm intrigued at how they keep bumping out the world and sort of raising the stakes of the stories with these trailers. I mean, this is the first one that's... You know, mentioned the curse. Uh, likewise, this is the first uh, we've seen Corey before, but this is the first time she's been sort of allowed to talk, and that—that's a fascinating character right there. Yeah, I'm I'm glad they're showing more of the world now, and um, you know, you see the Manticore voiced by Octavia Spencer and mm-hmm. um, all of that. So, yeah, I think it gives a good sense of the movie. Um, I think I I mean there's more in that trailer that I've seen finished than I've seen of the movie so I'm very excited to see it all <laughs> lit and animated and all that so but yeah. yes please pre-order yeah. your copy of the book and you can you can print out a little you know graphic and give it to your loved one and say it's coming in March it'll be you know worth the wait you know but yeah, yeah. what a throwback to the uh the original Star Wars Yes exactly exactly a voucher okay. for years yeah All right, so this trailer is going out in front of Star Wars Episode Nine, The Rise of Skywalker. (sighs) You know, just the the, kind of intriguing that in in the same window, we're getting the very last push for Spies in Disguise. Kind of was talking with somebody at Disney, and so so far they're really pleased at reviews. So far, they've been largely positive. Uh, The movie sitting at 81% 81% freshness over Rotten Tomatoes, uh, which compared to the 59% for <laughs> Rise of Skywalker. Uh, which know, is, which but, is charitable, I would say. Oh. <laughs> Let me okay, say. well, I, I have yet to see this film myself, folks. I have to admit, I'm, I'm not, I, you know, I'm, I'm a little concerned about what's being said about this last uh, chunk of the Star Wars saga, uh, or excuse me, the Skywalker saga. Right. For me, it's just fascinating to watch how everybody has embraced the Mandalorian. And yeah, did you here, did you watch this week's episode yet? I soon as we finish okay. recording. Okay, this is the, your cherry the, the, on top. I, there we go. There we go. Uh, but to, to slide back to Despise in Disguise now, this film drops on Christmas Day. I guess what kind of concerns me is again, Disney's been very hands on. The last couple of months uh, in regard to this Blue Sky project and, you know, we've talked in uh, the past about, for example, bringing Reba McIntyre in and, to, to voice the boss. Uh, and by the way, that that's evidently one of the, the things that people really enjoy about this film is her vocal performance. But let's also be honest here. Uh, once this film comes out, we have 25 months till the very next Blue Sky project shows up. What is it? Uh, you know, back in June of, of 2015, that's when Blue Sky announced that they had hired Patrick Osborne or Paperman fame to, to direct a, a feature film version of Noel Stevenson's webcomic on uh, Nimona. And again, this is a relatively new thing. That debuted on the line of June of 2012. We saw the same thing with Spies in Disguise, though. That got its release date changed a bunch of times, yes. right? Yes, yeah. Uh, At least know. three times, yeah. Yeah, so, yeah, Nimona initially started off with a release date of February 14, uh, 2020. Uh, you know, it would have been out for Valentine's Day of the coming year. And then in May of uh, 2019, after Disney officially took ownership of Fox, uh, they announced they were shifting Nimona's release date to March of 2021. And just last month, uh, it got slid back yet again. Disney was sort of juggling its long-term release schedule for Fox and Pixar and Lucasfilm and the, the like. And now Nimona isn't coming out till January 14th, 2022. Let's face it, Drew, 25 months from now, given what's going on in entertainment with Disney Plus and like all the other subscription services, 
you know, can we even be sure this is going to make it out into theaters? Or? Uh, no, I don't think I don't think that's anything from a of a you know guaranteed. I I don't know where I mean. There's a lot of different platforms now for this thing to premiere. It's just insane that it's it's seemingly a finished movie if it's out. It was supposed to be out in February and it's getting pushed back to 2022. I mean, mm. I don't know. It's crazy. No, I agree. No, no. Uh, we were talking just a second ago about Patrick Osborne, and of course, he's the director of the Academy Award-winning, you know, Paperman short. And uh, you mentioned as we were pre-gaming that you got to see Disney's newest short, Myth, right? Yes, it's a VR short. It is um, really wonderful. I just wish mm-hmm. I knew how and where and with what technology people could see it. Because it is a fully immersive um, VR experience, you know, it's being rendered in real time. And I think the thing that you'll really love about it, Jim, is that mm. it, the production design was by Brittany Lee. So she designed the oh. whole thing. Yeah. And there's a lot of really clever use of 2D animation mm. in it, um, in this great, you know, graphic VR format. Um, mm. It kind of tells the story of the Enchanted Forest from Frozen 2. And mm-hmm. the, um, you know, the spirits that live there of the different elements. Mm-hmm. And it would make a very, I mean, if they plopped it into the beginning of the movie, I think it would make a very smart kind of prologue to the main story. Um, Evan Rachel Wood actually narrates it. So there's mm-hmm. some continuity there with voice actors, which is pretty big. Um, and yeah, I really, really loved it. Jeff Gibson, who directed Cycles, which I loved uh, from last year is back in the director's seat and it is really something. I don't know how you'll see it or where you'll see it. Maybe at the void. I don't know, but uh, yeah. That's it's interesting that you mentioned cycles. Cause again, I've been trying to see this thing for a year now, again, given the technology and given the, the limited opportunity to get these things out there. Um, I mean, for example, it's gotta be, somewhat frustrating given what just happened earlier this week where we saw those 92 possible nominees for this year's academy award for best animated short winnowed down to the short list of 10 and you know myth isn't on it again mind you kitbull and hair love which you and i both you know really really enjoyed i kind of they made the, the the list but, you know, something like this, it really is pushing sort of storytelling, or at least, you know, how we perceive storytelling in a, a film format. The fact that, you know, just because of it's difficult for people to actually experience, because, again, it's not a passive watching experience, right? You have to sort of, you're the one sort of driving what you're looking at, right? Yes, I mean, but but this one gives a great, it kind of cues you as to where to look, mm-hmm. Um Jeff is really a guy who's interested in quote unquote cinematic VR. So he, Mm -hmm. he wants you to kind of watch it, not experience it like directly. Mm -hmm. It's not something like Vader immortal, which I, which I did a few weeks ago, which, you know, you're swinging a lightsaber and all that. It's Mm -hmm. it's not something like that. Um, But I think you'll really appreciate it. it. You know, they, they sort of like took cues from different Disneyland attractions. You know, there's a little bit of, of it's a small world in there and the production design and the kind of look of it. And there's a section of it where the Aurora Borealis pops up that looks exactly like World of Color. Um, so I think you'll love it in that regard. Mm. Um, but yes, it is not a, it's a, you're not walking through anything. You're, you're stationary, you're watching it, it's unfolding mm-hmm. before you, and it's really, really beautiful. And if you love characters like the Knock or the Salamander from the movie, you will get a lot of that. Uh, if you don't mind asking, where did you go to see this? I went to the studio. So I went down to Walt Disney Animation Studios. And the last time when I went down for Cycles, it was literally just me in the room, Mm -hmm. in the VR room. And they had done a a nice job kind of moving press, a lot of like tech reporters and stuff through Mm -hmm. the space. They had about four or five headsets set up and Mm -hmm. we all just did it. Hopefully I'll have some audio from that later on that we can share. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's, it it was a really, really fun day. Um, and anytime you go to animation studio, it's a good day, you know? Okay. No, I agree. I agree. Uh, to slide back to frozen two for just a sec. Okay. So, uh, (laughs) kind of a fascinating moment because again, with, with, 
uh, Rise of Skywalker basically blotting out the sun for the next couple of weeks. Just this past weekend, uh, you know, this Chris Buck, Jennifer Lee movie became the sixth film uh, that Disney Studios have released this year to make over a billion dollars uh, worldwide. Uh, and, and in fact, talking with folks at the studio today that, what is it? it as of this moment, the box office for Frozen 2 sits at $1,035,000,000. And so the interesting thing is that puts it just below the $1,067,000,000 that Toy Story 3 made back in 2010 and the $1,073,000,000 that Toy Story 4 made just this past summer. So I, I don't know if you've seen the campaign uh, that, that Disney's got out now where it's the uh, See It Again no, you know, I haven't. The, like, these are TV ads that are doing that are running. Yeah, now? it's one of these things where it's like I'm always fascinated by you kind know, of the decisions as to what you do to promote a film. You know, so many of the ads right now key off of Josh Gad's Samantha bit. Yeah, and and I don't know if you saw the Funko Pop thing that got tweeted out, uh, where somebody actually made a box for a Samantha Frozen Two figure. Where it's just it's an empty Funko box. Um, yes, that's very funny. I agree, I agree. But it's just it's this whole notion, I guess, that um, you know Disney's fairly certain at this point that okay, we know we'll we'll, we'll make more money than for uh, to me Toy Story three to Toy Story four. Then it gets to be kind of an uphill climb. Face it, the original Frozen back in two thousand late two thousand thirteen early two thousand fourteen made. You know, a, a billion two hundred fifty million dollars, and the thinking at this point is just I I don't know if this time around we're going to be able to do that, and it's just. But on the other hand, it's like we've made over a billion dollars, and and more to the point, we have this amazing, you know, retail program. In fact, uh, I was just at our local Target. Uh, have you seen the Playdate Sven? Uh, Drew. <laughs> Is it the giant one that kids can ride on or get on? Not they can't ride it, but they can get on the back of it. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's it can support kids up to seventy pounds. You know, it, it's over three feet tall. You know, from from hoof to antler. I don't need one, but I want one. But it would take up so much goddamn room. You know, it's just sort of. I mean, you might as well hang a real deer head in in your house. That's how big this thing is. That's evidently selling really well. The, one of the top holiday toys this season is sort of the ultimate Arendelle Castle, which has a price point of two hundred dollars. Uh, and that's the one that like she, opens up and lights up and all that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and uh, you know, and and then you know, it it goes all the way to there are special limited edition Frozen Two ice creams that I was just today looking at. Chocolof, which <laughs> literally filled with little chocolate Olaf pieces, and I just sort of like, okay, you know, it just, you know, so that's the thing. Like to me, it's always amusing to talk with people at the studio about, like, oh, I don't think, you know, we're going to beat, you know, the first Frozen, and it's just sort of like, you know, wow, okay, you're wading through a sea of money, and you know, it's just, and you've made over a billion dollars off of this film already, right? Um. But I guess, again, it'll be interesting, especially given the reviews for uh, Rise of Skywalker. And, you know, that likewise, we were talking last week about uh, Jumanji Next Level and Spies in Disguise. It is going to be interesting in two weeks' time uh, on January 1st to see where this all settles out. Who, who gets what? Um, what about Cats. Well, you know, in, in fact, it's it's interesting you say that because, in fact, I have to ask, did you, find, were you in the situation where a lot of folks were, you know, who worked the entertainment side of the street that, what was it, that they actually showed uh, Rise of Skywalker and Cats on the exact same day and people had to sort of run from one screening to the well, other? Well, the, the way they staggered it was that there were sort of daytime screenings and nighttime screenings. So you could do both in one day. Mm -hmm. And it was very funny because the, at I was at the Star Wars premiere, not to mm -hmm. toot my own horn, but mm -hmm. clearly if Dan Z was there, they were allowing pretty much, you know, anybody. <laughs> and I think he was, you know, rifling Ugh. through the garbage behind the theater or something. But... <laughs> Um, 
you know, they were they had the premieres at the same time too, which I thought was very mm. funny and interesting. Almost across the street from each other, which was really yeah. So you know, Cats and, and Star Wars definitely battling it out this week. But you know that it it was finished at eight a.m. the day of the premiere. That you're kidding? Yeah, that they Tom Hooper said he stayed up thirty six hours working on it. And when they screened the movie for the journalist that went to the junket last weekend, the movie was only 75% finished. Wow. Yeah. Holy cow. Yep. And? I don't. I didn't go. Ah, okay. <laughs> It'll take right. a lot to get me to go see Cats. That seems like a kind of like lazy Sunday movie where I can, you know, be playing Switch at the same time as watching it. <laughs> you know, that kind of day. You know what I'm talking about, Jim. You know, I, I don't think they're going to be using that as a pull quote no, for the box. No, no, true. No. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Pivoting now to television. Um, I, you know, look, we, we've talked previously about She-Ra. Uh, She-Ra and the Princesses of Power. Uh, debuted on Netflix November of last year. Critically acclaimed right out of the box. Very popular with subscribers. So, you know, we're not really surprised that... That 13-episode, you know, first season was followed with a second season, uh, which debuted in April of last year, but only, what, seven episodes? And then third season, which debuted in August, only had six episodes. And let's be honest here, Drew, that's, they took, you know, season two, which had 13 episodes, and broke it into a seven-episode and a six-episode thing. And we finally got what they call season four, uh, that debuted on Netflix on uh, November 2nd, and that was back up to 13 episodes. But again, very popular. Uh, in fact, we were just talking about the, the Frozen toys. The, the Shira toys are out on the store shelves right now, doing very, really well. So not really a surprise to get today's announcement about the He-Man show. Right. Uh, interesting to me is that Shira is produced for Netflix by DreamWorks Television Animation, which I want to say DreamWorks acquired the rights to Shiro when they bought Classic Media, right? Yes. That was, yeah. Okay. So here's what confuses me. The, the, the He-Man thing, Shira's hand-drawn, the He-Man reboot's going to be CG, but it's Netflix and Mattel Television that's okay. producing it. Um, so again, and, and, and let's be honest, Mattel is the one that created the toy line back in the, the 1980s. And in fact, uh, by the way, have you ever seen the, the, the toys that made us a uh, episode about He-Man or? I did. Um, I was not, I was never a big He-Man kid growing up. So it was, it was illuminating. And you know, those oh, guys yeah, are but, doing a, they're doing a series on, on Disney plus about different attractions. Um, that's coming, I think, really? next year. Yeah, it, oh, it's called. Really? Uh, I think it's called Behind the Attraction. It's the one that The Rock is producing, but it's the guys that that made the toys that made us. I have to admit, I've been looking to carve out time for the. They've created a companion series for yes. the toys that made us. That's really the good too. That, yeah, I've I've heard that. I've uh, gonna want to chase that down at some point. But yeah, I I have to admit, I'm just kind of intrigued that it's Mattel itself that's that's producing the series. But again, the weird thing is when, when you are hands-on with your own stuff, you, you sometimes get great, great animation, which, which brings us to Harley Quinn. Yes. Uh, you know, I, I, now, mind you, I've only caught the one episode that they rebroadcast, repurposed, and it was, it was either TNT or TBS. Yeah, when they were doing the, like, DC marathon. Yeah. But, yeah. Oh, my God. That it, it was... I have to caution people right up front. It's it, it's really foul about. It's incredibly violent. It's also wonderfully written. Really, really funny. In fact, that's the, the thing. I, I was halfway convinced to subscribe to DC Universe just to get the rest of these shows because there's, there's 13 episodes in season one, right? Yes, I think there's only been three or four that have have been have gone up but yeah i think it's really great i think it's really funny and the it kind of reminds me of kind of an archer slash frisky dingo vibe mm-hmm. it's very kind of deadpan and uh yeah the tbs or tnt version was pretty tame too because they they bleeped out a lot of things that they do they not did. They yeah did. but but at the same time i mean it just it has 
these wonderful character diversions. It's like, you know, at one point, not to spoil the, the, the pilot first episode of the show, but at one point, the Joker, you know, has both Harley and Batman dangle over what are supposed to be pools of acid, and he has to decide who he's going to save. And the Joker chooses Batman, you know, his arch nemesis over Harley, and Harley plunges into the, the to the acid, and but it's not really acid. It's uh, what is it? It's margarita mix, right? Right. And, <laughs> and, and this is wonderful little moment where it's just sort of like you know, and it's the Riddler who set up this whole fake you know thing to to sort of nail home the message that to Harley that the Joker's no good for her. You know, he's never going to choose her, and that she has to move on with her life. And but but. They have this great conversation between uh, Poison Ivy and the Riddler about, you know, God, I had to go everywhere to get that that margarita mix. And it's just sort of, well, you know, look, if you you went to Costco and it's like, it's not, you know, I only go to Costco once a year. It's not worth the $100 membership. (laughs) You know, it's one of these, these character moments where it's just sort of, I never expect to hear... You know the, the the Riddler and and Poison Ivy having this conversation, and again, you're right. It's that that Archer vibe. Yeah, that, very kind of just, subversive. Oh yeah, and then the vocal cast. I mean, how early on did you realize that that was Alan Tudyk as the voice? Of it the took character? it took me a little while, but I think he does a fantastic job. <sighs> No, he's amazing. And, you know, just sort of, you know, and and that's the thing. I was almost embarrassed when I was looking at the credits at the end. Well, of course it's Alan Tudor. I mean, right. you can, but yeah, just cannot wait to see what he does with the rest of the show. Yeah, it's oh. it's really good. And and Lake Bell, I think, as Poison Ivy, who is sort of like uh, Harley Quinn's roommate in this mm-hmm. show, is so good. I love her talking uh, plant that's voiced by J.B. Smoove, which is, <laughs> it, you know, Something that has never been in the comics or anything else, but it's so funny and so great. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's really, it's a great show. I, I was very surprised by it. No, no, definitely, definitely check this out. I just, again, have to caution you. <laughs> not for the kids. Violence, not not for, kids. for kids, but still well worth seeking out. Uh, now, and, and speaking of shows that, that are kind of surprising... Steven Universe, we're now Steven Universe Future, and we're about, what, six, seven episodes into this? Yeah, this... I don't know how many there are total, but there have, I think, yeah, I think six have aired. It's it's one of those weird scheduling things where they they air it sort of together, you know, it's, mm-hmm. it's very weird, but um, it's interesting. I mean, I think they've always sold it as kind of an epilogue to the series. Mm-hmm. It's not, yeah, you know... Yeah. It, it, it's supposed to what the, the follow up the, the Steven Universe movie musical, right? Uh, for me, what's kind of intriguing to see this is in a weird sort of way a less confident Steven who, but at the same time, acquiring new skills, uh, you know, coming up against new characters that yes. you know, um, again, you know, always always well written, always interesting to. To watch, but it just, I have to admit, it's like, where is this going? Yeah, um, I mean, it seems to really be continuing what was done in the movie, which is sort of like establishing things are great, everybody's happy, the diamonds mm-hmm. are kind of in check, and then sort of undoing that slowly and mm-hmm. and finding conflict sort of in, in the interpersonal relationships of the gyms and... Um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm very taken... I mean, I just, I love the animation so much, and I love... Mm-hmm the kind of stylistic leap forward that they've um, kind of put into this uh, new show. And I, I'm sure you loved the episode where like all the gems were kind of reassigned to other things yeah. in, the, in the town. And yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, that, that's, well, I forget the one that was assigned to the roller coaster and enjoyed the job because I like hearing humans scream. Right. <laughs> <laughs> was like, Oh, that's, that's a little dark. So, um, <laughs> But anyway, uh, okay, and I guess as, as we're continuing the animation news of the week, um, we got Dean Dubois, the gentleman who's directed, uh, solo directed uh, How to Train Your Dragon 2 and How, How to Train Your Dragon Hidden World. He, it kind of an interesting deal. It, it's, 
uh, first look at Universal and DreamWorks, right? Or- yeah, I mean, I think this is the kind of deal people dream about because um, <laughs> it's like live action slashed mixed. They kind of said hybrid projects are going to go to Universal and then mm. animated features are going to go to DreamWorks. I have no idea how he is going to accomplish all of this um, or any of it, but, well, you know. Because yeah, out ahead of this, he signed to do what? A Treasure Island for Universal. There's also a Micronauts future. Yes. A feature. I mean, all of the things that he's been announced for, I guess, are going to be under this umbrella of this mm-hmm. deal. But, uh, yeah, it's interesting. And, and as we were talking about, you know, before we started recording, they don't really mention anything about Chris Sanders and how he's about to embark on his first <laughs> live action feature, which is the really wonderful looking uh, Call of the Wild adaptation with Harrison Ford. Um, yeah. Who I mean, who I should mention, Danzi bothered at the <laughs> premiere. I'm sure. I'm sure Harrison really loved that. Oh. Um, so you know, he's. I well, guess he's gone through the worst after that encounter. But in fact, this coming we're two days away now from Togo debuting on Disney Plus, and you have talked this thing up to me for months. Yes. So I am so looking. You have to. You have to, to message me after you watch it. Okay. okay. Uh, for me, you know, it's just fascinating that we get Togo arriving at Disney Plus. We get Call of the Wild, and that's February, right? On that's Fox. The, the, yeah, theatrically, it will be out. Yeah, yeah. You know, and again, you know, just sometimes this happens. You know, the, you know, the, it's like that uh, weird summer back in the 1980s, where what inside of like three months. The three different body switching movies, big, vice versa, and eighteen again, all came out. Right. In you know, and uh, if it's one thing that that Disney Plus is really doubling down on, it's dogs. Um, mm-hmm. Between Lady and the Tramp, Pick of the Litter, a new documentary mm-hmm. series that's debuting soon. Uh, you know, it's, it's a good time to be to love dog things, I guess. Mm-hmm. What's kind of intriguing to me is that, again, supposedly this is the Disney company continuing, you know, uh, going to sort of circle back on, you know, its hand-drawn films. In fact, uh, did we talk yet about the Mulan uh, trailer? I don't think we did. I thought it was great, though. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, I have to admit, I'm just kind of intrigued about the whole notion of the, the Mongol horde being, you know, accompanied by a, a, a witch, you know, what bend that'll put on the story. But yeah, I know. I thought it, w- it was a great looking trailer. But what's kind of intriguing to me is that supposedly, you know, here's Disney looking further down the road to the effect of, OK, these are, you know, especially on the heels of the business Lion King did just this past summer. And uh, in fact, we were talking a little bit about award season and. How frustrating can that be? You you have this top earning film that you've deliberately kept out of the animation category, and you know what? You know, I guess right now they're they're pinning their hopes on okay, the Beyonce song, because uh, that's probably the only thing that's going to get recognized. Yeah, I mean, it might get recognized for visual effects, but who, uh, who knows? Yeah, but. Uh, but the interesting thing is that, you know, they are looking to continue this. And there's that Snow White, Rose Red script. And I, oddly enough, I forget who I was just talking with about this, but, you know, you mentioned that Disney's doubling down on dogs and that supposedly that they're, they're also kicking the tires of an Aristocats movie. Speaking of which, when we get back from this commercial break, we're going to talk uh, at least a little bit about how the the original animated Aristocats came about in the 1970s. And we're back. Um, Okay, so before we we get into some Disney history here, uh, (laughs) you know, we we talked on on earlier shows about, you know, as part of the 25 Days of Christmas, uh, how Freeform has been showing Simpsons and, and grouping holiday episodes together. But Freeform has also begun showing Family Guy. And typically it runs after the 700 Club. And just this past week, I literally called Nancy out of the bedroom because it was like, I need a witness to, to, to actually see this. And froze the television, actually took a picture of this with my phone. There was a title card up 
the 700 Club had just finished airing on Freeform. And remember, the this was one of the terms of Disney buying the Family Channel, which it then turned into ABC Family, which eventually became Freeform, right? Yeah, I mean, I didn't know this story until you had told it to me, but it's a... Uh... It's crazy. It's it's sort of I don't know. I, I can't believe it's still going on. Quite frankly, I I and you said well, it will probably go on forever. Well, that's the thing. The, the terms of the contract is I guess at eleven a.m. to twelve noon, and then eleven p.m. to twelve midnight. The channel literally stopped showing all of their programming that's aimed at the becomers. So what is it that that <laughs> yes. demographic? The demographic that Disney made up. Yes, correct. Yeah. You know, uh, 14 to 28-year-olds, I think, it is, you know, the, the, the way they describe it. But it then becomes the 700 Club. So this was the title card that came up as soon as the, the 700 Club ended. It, it literally says, Family Guy is next on Freeform. It's okay to laugh. We're all going to hell anyway. Get her to put that on just after Pat Robertson has, has finished talking to the, the faithful, it's just sort of like, Again, I know they're locked in contractually, but it's almost at this point, that's, that's how, that's insulting. You know, I mean, you know, that that's deliberately provocative. But at the same time, I don't see the 700 Club people giving up those two hours of, of broadcasting, you know, every weekday. That's their straight pipe to their audience, and, and they're going to hang on to it tooth and nail. Anyway, okay, so we were talking about the Aristocats, and we got a note from Bernie. And Bernie says, hey, Jim and Drew, since it's almost Christmas, can you guys talk about the Aristocrats from 1970? The film will be turning 49 this Christmas Eve and 50 next year. Can you have an in-depth discussion about this movie since it was Walt's final project that he approved? Also goes on to ask about Marie, who I think, Drew, you were talking about how She's become this ridiculously popular character outside of the movie. Yeah, I mean, she she's on more merchandise than I can. I actually just saw that, that a Dooney and Burke uh, Aristocats collection was released this week at the Disney Parks. And really? Yeah, and I think a lot of it has to do with Marie's, you know, popularity. I, the, the only other thing that sort of... I think was taken away from the movie and sort of put into the general kind of discourse is that everybody wants to be a cat musical number because mm-hmm. that yep. was on every sing along songs video in the eighties and nineties. And, you know, that kind of has life outside of the, the movie, but I don't think a lot of people really think about the movie as a whole very much. No, no. And, and Bernie brings up an interesting point. It was the very first film put into production uh, after Walt died. And and yes, he did sign off. You know, the, the, the story, as I understand it, is that uh, Walt originally arranged for the Aristocats to be purchased as a story, but it was supposed to be done on the wonderful world of color. Uh, it was going to be a, a live-action thing. Uh, not only that, Walt had... Initially, you know, if you remember the story of from the movie that there's an evil butler. And so for the, the TV project that they wanted to do, they were going to do a two-part episode of the, the Wonderful World of Color. And they wanted the evil butler to be played by Boris Karloff. And, you know, he was going to be, the, the you know, the celebrity that the story was going to be built around. But there was also... It was a far more elaborate story. I mean, I want to say Duchess, the character that Eva Gabor voices in the film. There's a lot made of the fact that, you know, her children are are very talented when it comes to the arts. I want to say that Toulouse paints and Berlioz plays music, and I forget what Marie does. But She's you know, just the, cute. She's just cute. Yeah. Uh, but but the, in the the story that... It, well, in fact, I've, I've got my copy of the latest. Uh, they drew what they please, the hidden art of Disney's early renaissance. And this is the book that covers the 70s and the 80s. I'm dying for but, that one, Jim. I haven't gotten I write a book for Chronicle and I don't get a freaking copy. <laughs> they you drew need they... to talk to these folks because, <laughs> you know, um, we'll, we'll listen to this. That This is the original story for the, you know, for the TV movie. And, and when they started, they took it over to animation. 
Uh, far too long and too complex. On the human side, the key characters included Madame Adelaide Bonafamille, her butler Edgar, Edgar's wife Elviry, as well as Madame Bonafamille's doctor, nurse, and lawyer. The Duchess, the cat's Duchess and O'Malley uh, were already there, but then there were five kittens. There was, and this is what you'll love, Drew, that, that her name wasn't Marie, it was Marie Antoinette, as in the, the, the who got guillotined. Off with their heads, uh, Jim, off with their heads. You know, uh, there was Berlioz, there was Renoir, there was Escoffier, that was going to be a gourmet cat, and a black cat called Waterloo. And the, the idea was that one of the key plots of this movie was going to be that Duchess was trying to find just the right people to adopt all five of her kittens. So in addition to this, you know, evil butler trying to get rid of the cats who were going to get uh, Madame Bonfamille's fortune, uh, you were also supposed to have Duchess trying to find just the right people to adopt her kittens and make sure that their gifts were encouraged. And um, I, I guess in a, w- a weird sort of way that, that you can't really talk about what happened with the Aristocats without talking about what was going on at Disney animation in the late fifties and early sixties. And in a weird sort of way, the story really starts with the release of sleeping beauty and how that movie, you know, it was the most expensive movie Disney had made to date. Uh, it was a $6 million animated feature and it lost money. It, and in fact, it lost so much money that for the first time in 10 years, when Disney published its next annual report, it had to report a loss. And and think about it, Drew. This is when the company has Disneyland, which is basically printing money. And they still managed to you know, they lose money because of Sleeping Beauty. It just it, it dragged down the earnings that much. And so... The, the board of directors basically calls Walt on the carpet and flat out tells him, look, you know, we've got the theme park now. We've moved into television. We've started doing live action. Uh, in fact, one of the things that they, they kept pointing out was that they, in this very same year that they had put Sleeping Beauty out, they had also done the Shaggy Dog. And that had cost the studio like 150000 uh, And it it basically made as much for the studio as it cost to make Sleeping Beauty. So it's like, why are we doing these animated features? And more to the point, we have 20 of them in the library. We now have developed this program where we're releasing them every couple of years or thereabouts. Uh, you know, we could just take the 20 we have and, you know, just ride them out for the foreseeable future. And Walt just couldn't see his studio not being in the animation business. So he came back and said, okay, how about this? What if instead of putting on a new animated feature every uh, four years, or excuse me, every two years, uh, we go to a new schedule. We go to a a four-year schedule. uh, And more to the point, we really cut the staff. You know, we, we really lower our overhead so it becomes a much more affordable thing to be in the animation business. And the board goes, okay. So... And, and in fact, this is. Have you finished reading the the Queens of Animation yet? The, no, the, not yet. It's on my Christmas to do list. Okay, I I almost hesitate to suggest that people pick up this book because, especially if you're you're a woman in who works in the industry, you're going to spend a lot of time throwing this book at the wall because there's a lot of things that will make you mad that you're going to read about in here, about how really talented women got treated at, at Disney Studios. And, and in fact, a lot of women, oddly enough, lost their jobs at Disney after Sleeping Beauty because they, they cut the staff from 550 people working in feature animation, Drew, to 75. Oh, wow. You know. Yeah, and not only that, and in fact, in one of those, geez, you know, that, that that this doesn't really reflect well on on the nine old men, but it was the nine old men who personally decided who stayed and who went. Yeah. Um, again, the when in doubt, it was like, well, he's he's a guy, and he's the the you know, main breadwinner for his family, so he stays, and let, let's cut all the women. Um, <laughs> uh. 
Um, so anyway, but you know, at the same time, they've got 101 Dalmatians. 101 Dalmatians has been in development since 57. So it's like, okay, that's definitely going. On the other hand, Chanticleer, which, you know, Mark You call Davis, it Chanticleer, I call it Rockadoodle Jim, okay? Well, I was just reading, somebody was talking about how Rockadoodle is their favorite Don Bluth film. And it was just sort of like, wow. Okay, um, that's a, I, that's I, a I, choice. I, I have to admit, same thing. Um, but yeah, the uh, Chanticleer basically got sacrificed uh, because we've always heard that it, you know, it was this very ambitious musical film, and you know, and literally they had a choice between doing Chanticleer or Sword in the Stone, which had a smaller cast, was a less ambitious film, and more to the point, xerography uh, had just come into the studio, and this is this new mechanical process that would allow basically you to, to take a, a drawing on the three peg paper and copy it straight onto to acetate. And it, it basically, an inker could do 50 cells a day. Xerography could turn out a thousand cells a day. And so again, same thing. They just, they uh, shut down the process or, you know, they, they cut the people and, and brought in xerography but, you know, here's Walt uh, during the same period and looking for simpler films to make, you know, the, the, with the notion of, well, let's go back to Dumbo. Let's go back to smaller, shorter, easier to make films. And during this time, 1963, 64, uh-huh. they're a- actually developing a Winnie the Pooh full length feature film. But Walt, I, I guess they had one presentation and, you know, Walt's finally wa- watching it and it's like, it's not strong enough to support a, f- a feature film. All right. But I don't want to throw away all this work we've done, especially with the board breathing down my neck. So let's make a featurette. And and that's where it really got interesting because if you think about it, in 64, uh, Mary Poppins comes out and all people can talk about is... You know, they, they love the movie, but they especially love the Jolly Holiday scene, you know, with the you know com- combination of live action and animation. Uh, and then uh, in February of 66, the Winnie the Pooh and the Honey Tree comes out paired with the Ugly Dachshund and does so much business that in May of that same year, May of 66, uh, Walt sends a you know a congratulatory note to the story team and says, "Hey, we got all that stuff that's left over from the feature. Can we maybe talk about doing a sequel?" And at the same time, Walt is also uh, being very hands-on for the first time in years with the Jungle Book. And you know, it, it's I don't need to get into the whole Bill Pete quitting from Disney. He was the guy who wrote 101 Dalmatians. He's the guy who wrote. Uh, Sword in the Stone, and he's his take on the Jungle Book was so much darker than Walt wanted that they had this big blowout, and Bill basically walks out the door at Disney in uh, January of '64, and Walt, for the first time in, in a lot of years, decides, well, you know, I'm I'm going to prove to Bill Pete that he's wrong. There really is a lighthearted, fun film here, and he sat in on story meetings instead of how he had been doing animation for a while now, which was he'd show up once a month, he was in there every week and was very hands-on in regard to the casting. I mean, for example, George Sanders, the voice of Shere Khan, you know, Walt was like, well, wait a minute, I know him. You know, he'd be ideal for this. Let me, he's a friend of mine. Let me reach out and I'll get that going. Uh, likewise, same thing with Phil Harris is the voice of Baloo. You know, the, Walt was actually friendly with Alice Faye, the movie star from the 40s, uh, who was Phil Harris's wife. And it's just sort of like, let me call Alice. I think we can get Phil to do this. But but again, he, he sorts out the story. He gets it going. And then in December of 66, uh, Walt dies. And then in October of 67, you know, Jungle Book comes out and it is this colossal hit. But as we mentioned at the very top of the segment, that, um, you know, so here is this TV movie version, two-part episode of The Wonderful World of Disney, or excuse me, Wonderful World of Color. But the thing is, the story's too complicated, and frankly, Walt is looking for stuff on the other side of Jungle Book. 
and you know just the effect of oh, we better get something in the pipeline because I know the board is anxious to shut down feature animation. And I got this this two-part episode of The Wonderful World of Color that really isn't working, but I think there's something in here that we could maybe do for animation. So he turns to Ken Anderson, who's one of his nine old men, and tells Ken, hey, you know, uh, take a look at this story. See what you can do. And Ken puts together this set of drawings. And this is literally the fall of, of 66 after Walt has had his surgery. And, you know, Ken brings them in and Walt goes, yeah, okay, all right, I, I can see that. Uh, tell you what, why don't you guys work on that? And after we get Jungle Book uh, out the door, let's look at putting this into production. And But again, then Walt dies in December of 66 and for... For about six months, I won't say that work stopped at Disney because it really didn't, but it, there was this weird period where giant corporations like RCA were circling Disney and just the sort of notion of, well, Walt's dead, you know, uh, and he's the guy who was running the show there. And it's like, wow, there are some very tempting pieces and parts of this corporation. You know, if you guys decide to go out of the business, we'd be happy to buy you. But, you know, uh, Roy, uh, Walt's brother, he eventually comes out of mourning. And in the summer of 1967, I, and in fact, before uh, Jungle Book arrives in theaters in the fall of, of that same year, uh, he announces, OK, uh, we're back in business. We're going to build the, the resort in Florida and... You know, uh, what was that thing that Walt wanted to do? The Aristocats thing? Okay, we're going to do that too. And, but <laughs> the, the how we got from there to the finished film, that's a story for another time, which we will save for the very next episode of Fine Tuning. And, and Drew, if people need to sort of fill some time, you know, in between now and in the next episode, I think that they're just going to be on their hands and knees, just waiting for this <laughs> the follow up for the Aristocats, the the story of a, how a masterpiece was born, Jim. But yeah, well, no, that's I, I think that's the thing that fascinates me. The Aristocats is what it is. It's it's in a weird sort of way, it's the film that kept feature animation going. And in yeah. fact, uh, honestly, if you you look. You know, it, and the film that followed this, Robin Hood, pretty much the same thing. Uh, you know, it wasn't honestly till Rescuers in 77 where it seemed like, okay, they kind of know what they're doing again. Right. Uh, but yeah, I think it, it you and I... It seemed to me that when they, whenever they re-released it, it was they were always selling it as just sort of the cat version of 101 Dalmatians. I, you know, in, in fact, you know, the, the real irony is that's one of the notes, supposedly, that Walt gave to Ken Anderson, you know, to the effect of that because the TV thing was so complicated with the jewel robbery and the evil butler and the finding homes for the five kittens and that sort of thing. It's like, no, 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 this needs to be simple. This needs to be clear. This needs to be like a hundred Walt Dalmatians, and, which is ironic because... Walt, when 101 Dalmatians came out and it was the first film to use erography, Walt hated the look of it so much. And he blamed Ken Anderson uh, because Ken had been the had found the xerography technology, had brought it back to the company, had championed it and, you know, so berated Ken, you know, and, and, and this is a successful film, you know, and, and it's it's moving a lot of merch and it got great reviews and that sort of thing. But Walt just felt that it was a step backwards, you know, that that he didn't have the fine, clear lines of when he had humans in the loop inking the cells. And he so went after Ken uh, and so stressed him out. Ken had two strokes in one week and, you know, and was basically incapacitated. And But Walt put out word to Ken's family to not to worry about it, that we'll take care of all of his hospital bills and we'll keep him on the payroll. And Ken really wasn't, able to come back to work for a year and a half wow 
but again, you know, the, the irony is that after, after the fact, Walt was, went out of his way to be kind and, you know, uh, solicitous of, of Canon and more to the point eventually came around to the effect of, yeah, I kind of like the way 101 Dalmatians looks now. So, all right, I trust your judgment. But again, he, that's, this is the part of the Disney story that, that always makes me crazy because everyone, you know, these days everyone thinks of Walt as that guy who stands in the middle of the planter holding Mickey Mouse's hand, you know, uh, you know, just pointing down Main Street and look at all the happy people, Mickey. And nobody remembers, you know, Walt the taskmaster or, or Walt the guy who could really be tough right. and mean. The, the fact, I mean, I get the whole history written by the victors thing, but, you know, the, the fact that he could put a guy under so much stress that he had two strokes in one week. <laughs> that's, you what you, that's what you do to me, Jim. There you go. <laughs> there we go. Well, all right. No pressure, Drew, but but what's going on on the, the light the fuse side of the fence? What, uh, what, what, well, what, this week starts our, our brand new three-part conversation with Paul Hirsch. So mm-hmm. I implore you to listen to that, especially if you've picked up his wonderful new book uh, in a cutting room far, far away, a long time ago in a cutting room far, far away, which is wonderful. And I know that you've read cover to oh, cover, yeah. Jim. Um, yeah, and yeah, great, we, great we, we've got a lot of fun stuff coming up. We were just uh, chatting with Tommy Harper, who produced uh, four and worked as, I think, a production manager on three. And he's got a great some great stories there, some stuff that we had actually never heard. Um, so, you know, got to and, we snuck into the top, the Top Gun production offices and had a chat. So, you know, that's oh, that was fun. Oh, uh, that's killer. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah, it's going to be it's going to be a fun year, I think, um, for Light the Fuse. So, yeah. Oh, and, and speaking of which, we did have one little sad bit of news, Mission Impossible related. We we. The, the famous theme song that has the yes. the bongo part to it. We, we lost the guy who who did the uh, that he played the bongos. Yeah, yeah I mean for the TV show. Yeah, I mean Lalo Schifrin, I'm still alive. Knock on wood. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, yeah, that was that was kind of a sad that was a sad news note. But you know, we will celebrate his work forever. There we go. There we go. And it just you know, one of the great session musicians yes. came in for a day and. You know, created that you know distinctive piece of music there. But okay, uh, and also the the Jim Hill Media side, we we've got some other podcasts as well. We got Disney uh, Dish with Lentesta. We've got uh, looking Lucas with Dan there, who's going to have wonderful stories when he comes back from the the. the yeah, home I'm community. sure. I'm sure. I'm sure he will. He'll <laughs> say, "Oh God, Harrison Ford was." So he was so excited to talk to me. I told him all about my high school English class, and he was oh, riveted. Be fair, he just need to what the, the the Chicago Tribune just did this great. You know, this, this you know, profile. we don't we don't look at the positive side of Danzi here, Jim. <laughs> This is this is my show, and that's how we're gonna do it. Okay. 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 My, my mistake. What what could I have been thinking? Uh, we also got what uh, marvelous Disney, the Marvel podcast I do with Aaron Adams. Uh, we have I I want that with Michelle Valladolid. We also have a Universal Joint uh, with Dustin Fuse, and of course the podcast you're listening to today, folks. The fine tuning, and tell you what, if you could do Drew and I a favor, uh, both in regard to light the fuse and fine tuning, if you could head over to iTunes and rate and recommend this show, that would be very appreciated. Uh, likewise, if you really, really, really like what you hear here, get over to Bandcamp and subscribe. And uh, I guess for now, uh, we want to wish you folks a happy holiday and. That sometime between Christmas and the New Year, we'll be back with another episode, and I promise we'll wrap up the Aristocat story at that point. And please pre-order but, my book, please. And please, please pre-order the art of Pixar Disney's Onward. Yes. And uh, for now, uh, we'll talk to you soon. <laughs>